Welcome to the Men's Divorce Podcast, presented by the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell, a partner men can count on. Now, here's your host, managing partner and CEO of Cordell & Cordell, Scott Trout. And welcome. This is Scott Trout. I'm the CEO and managing partner of Cordell & Cordell. And welcome to the uh, final and fourth part of our series that has been ongoing regarding divorce in general. You know, we've covered uh, topics related to pre-filing, post-filing, what to do. We talked about discovery. We talked about some strategy tips and making goals. And so what better place to end this series on divorce than talk settlement or trial? Uh, so I'm joined again um, with Kristen Zurich, who is a partner in litigation team at Cordell and Cordell. Welcome, Kristen. Thanks, Scott. So let's talk. We've, you know, in the first three parts, we've kind of built ourselves up to where guys have gotten to a point where maybe they're past settlement conferences uh, and they're approaching either a decision, do I settle it or do I try it, right? So let me, before I get there, as I've always cautioned everyone listening here, and that is we're both licensed in Missouri. I mean, I have all uh, other states and uh, Illinois and Georgia, but you know, there are guys out there and I know we're not licensed in your state. We probably have an office in your city or your state, uh, but make sure that you don't take this as legal advice. This is really just our, our general experience over the years and years of practice that we've done in just family law. Uh, so keep that in mind. It is not intended to be, nor is it, uh, legal advice. So what it is intended to be is educational, informative, and for you to really take some notes here uh, and then take an opportunity to go speak with a or your lawyer. If you don't have one, you certainly can find one. And we've talked about that in part three about how to find uh, a lawyer who does family law. And certainly we can help you at Cordell & Cordell if necessary. And I'll give you some contact information at the end. So let's talk about settlement. Um Generally speaking, you know, although there are guys listening here that are in other states and the laws may vary, um, we talk about the division of property. What does the court have to do with the property, whether it's marital or separate, and kind of what are they mandated to do? Sure. The judge's job in any case is to determine what you folks have on the table and how we're going to divide it. So there needs to be some pretty good work by your counsel in starting to um, do your due diligence. And if you brought assets into the marriage, your attorney had better be helping you find paperwork to prove that up to the judge. So that way the judge can carve off your separate assets to you. Um, If you folks have bought stuff during the course of the marriage, if you've, if you've you know, bought two or three different homes or rental properties, your, your attorney has to be helping you do the due diligence to prove up those, those values so you can talk to the judge about the fairest way to divide it. So in my experience, um, the, the division of assets has to be equitable. It doesn't necessarily have to be equal. So each law in each state differs a little bit, but the judge has to find the, the fairest way possible to take what everything you bring to the table and divide it in such a way that the two of you can go on and be okay. There's a lot of confusion as it relates to in, in states in which uh, define it this way that aren't community property states. Uh, Missouri is not one of those where they define marital and separate. So, you know, guys will come in in the office and they'll say, well, you know what? I paid for it with my money. Well, it's their job money, but it's marital money perhaps. Right. Maybe it's easier to give them the Missouri definition of marital and separate property because as we, we talk a little bit about its division, 
now guys will get at least of understanding, even though they may not live here in Missouri. Sure, I'll make that real clear. So what is marital is anything that accumulated from the time y'all married until the time y'all divorce. So if even if you're taking it and putting into a separate bank account that you had prior to the marriage, um, the money that you're putting into a separate account that you earned during the marriage, that's still marital money that you're putting in there. Uh, so that's the easiest way to sort of discern that. So people come to me all the time and ask me those questions about, you know, if I had this before the marriage or it's always been in my name or I never put her name on the house. But if you were, you know, making payments on the mortgage with uh, with money that you earned during the course of the marriage, unfortunately, she might have a claim to some of that. So it, it involves a real good understanding of your finances and where you're putting your money and how it relates to how the judge can take that into consideration in dividing up all that you folks have. And there are steps you can take to try to preserve and protect um as best possible, not assuring that clients get their separate property, but if it's easily identifiable, you can. There's ways not you, but just lawyers can do that to protect inheritance, separate property. Correct. Inheritance is probably one of the biggest questions I get routinely when I'm doing initial intakes. Um, my best advice on inheritance is if something came in, make sure you're, you're doing this cleanly, right? So if you got an inheritance from your mom who passed away, you're by all means going to put it in an account in your own name for the love of all things good and holy. Don't put her name on it. And make sure that if there's taxes that are due and owing by virtue of the, the inheritance, make sure it's coming out of those funds that you got from your mom. The moment you use joint funds to help try to pay down um, taxes on an inheritance could create a marital interest and you don't want to make your life any harder than it mm-hmm. needs to be. So guys out there, it's like they're faced with the question, do I settle or do I just go to trial? And so there are all these considerations that Chris and I were a little bit talking about before going online. And so let's talk in general, um, at least again, from the perspective of, of Missouri, and I think you alluded to it, that what is the court's authority when dividing the property? I mean, is it always 50-50? Is there skews? Can you settle for more? Can you settle for less? Kind of what's the guidepost and when they're thinking about should I settle? Um, is it reasonable to do it, what we call disproportionately, 60-40 to her, to you? Maybe just when they're making that decision, if they understand kind of the general guidelines of your experience and what you see sure. and, and walk them through that. Sure. So uh, how how does the judge approach the problem is, is the judge is finding a, trying to find a way to divide up what's been accumulated during the course of the marriage to allow both families to break up and for two new families to start and allow uh, for approximately a fair amount of assets in both households. And so the the judge's only fair way to do this is to try to find something that's equitable. At least in my experience, equal is the first place they go. But if there is a reason for things not to be equal, if someone has a disproportionate amount of separate property, well, then maybe dividing, giving them 100% of what they have and dividing what's left 50-50 might not be very fair. So we, we do see that routinely here in Missouri with teachers' pensions, which are deemed to be separate property just by virtue of how they're set up. So our judges will typically swing a little bit further in a disproportionate division. Maybe it's 52-48, 51-49, but it's not square right down the middle simply because there's a large separate asset component that needs to be taken into consideration. Now, the, a bigger picture question of should I settle or should I try the case when it comes to assets is you need to work with your attorney to try to find a division of asset that you want to proffer to the judge. So whether it's to the judge or even whether it's to another attorney, 
money in a settlement offer, you need to find a division of your assets that you feel comfortable with. I mean, nobody comes out of a divorce in a better financial situation when they were when they were married, but it's our job as your attorneys mm-hmm. to minimize that hit as much as we humanly can. And so that's always the first decision that I work on with my clients. If it doesn't make sense to try to settle this or is the wife coming from such a, a, a terrible position that she wants something she'll never get, that I have a better mm-hmm. shot with the lady in the black robe. So you've talked, I mean, just alluded to it about a, a, a disproportionate division. Let's just say, you know, I've, I've recommended to a client, hey, you know what, let's think about giving her 65% of the property, mm-hmm. right? And that is to pay down some alimony or Correct. some maintenance or spousal support. Um, because you may be giving her taxable property, which we'll talk about. Right. I mean, is that generally, if you can get a client over the idea that they walk away with less than half, is that generally a decent idea to consider? It, it's a very decent idea to consider, especially if it can buy you out of some alimony. Unfortunately, our state is one that is pretty pretty uh, prehistoric in terms mm-hmm. of how long people can pay. Other states are limited based upon um, numbers of years of marriage and other outside statutory factors. So that is something that we routinely consider where I practice primarily simply because if I can minimize someone's ability or need to have to pay for years and years and years by giving a little more of what's on the table now, I'm certainly willing to do it. Um, it uh, and alimony is a much bigger question because you end up having to have discussions about what it takes for somebody to get back out into the workforce. But um, if it means giving a little more now to pay a lot less in the future, I, it's a very rare situation where mm-hmm. a guy goes, no way, I don't want to have to deal with that. Right. If you can get past the notion of giving her more, uh, which is not easy. I mean, it's, it's especially when some of that money is coming out of your 401k and you're like, I just worked. 25 years to give her 60% of my 401k. Tell me how that's fair, right? Oh, yeah. And, and that's hard. I mean, so oftentimes dealing in family law, we have to separate the emotional attachment um, to make it more of a business decision is, look, let's lay it out in, in numbers here. Here's what we're looking at and here's why you're buying down your alimony or maintenance, right? Correct. It is, if you have an attorney that's helping you out through this divorce process, you should be working with your attorney on a gigantic spreadsheet. So mm-hmm. any good attorney that does this puts a value on your assets that you have and puts it all in a spreadsheet. One column's hers, one column's yours, and at the bottom is the, is the percentage split. Mm-hmm. So your attorney should be working with you to prioritize what you'd like to try to keep and to try to get to a property division split at the bottom that makes you as your client feel comfortable. And that's what you're going to proffer in a settlement proposal. That's what you're likely going to proffer when you go to trial because you're telling the judge exactly what you want and why you think it's fair. So a lot of guys, uh, they have a pension, you know, their union or they have a 401k, uh, you know, their life savings is sitting in there and they always want to know, you know, what happens to my 401k? If I'm going to settle uh, am I going to be taxed on it? How do you divide it? I mean, can you? I mean, there are prohibitions, for example, in Missouri on teachers' uh, retirement. You can't divide it. So what happens to a 401k and pension uh, in, let's just talk Missouri generally. It's federal law, right. but let's talk about that. Sure. So uh, retirement accounts, whether they're 401ks or pensions, are divided by what's called a qualified domestic relations order. So all of the retirement accounts are controlled by federal law and we're getting divorced in state court. So it's the old eighth grade civics of federal takes control over state. And so what we have to do at our state court level is do these orders that tell your pension company, the 
tell the IBEW Local 14 or tell the um, tell Fidelity who holds your 401k to take a percentage out of the account and open up an account in her name. So that initial split, whether it's a pension calculation or whether it's a 401k calculation, is not taxable to the person that's paying into the account. Mm -hmm. Um, After that split occurs, then anything she chooses to do with it, whether she takes it early or whether she cashes out the 401k and uses it to pay down a house, those are her taxable problems. They're not the clients in the first place. Right. You know, when you're talking, it's not taxable, right, upon as long as it's incident to the divorce. But there are tax ramifications to consider because you're going to get a taxable asset. And at some point in retirement, withdraw, you're going to pay capital gains. You may pay a penalty. So at Cordell & Cordell, we really – we talk about considering the tax implications of any settlement um, because you have assets that are personal property. They just have a value. They have no tax consequence. You have real estate that may or may not have a tax consequence as long as you reinvest it. Um, It depends on how long you've held it. Uh, There's commissions we'll talk about in a minute. Mm -hmm. So what should guys do? What should they insist on that that what you do at Cordell & Cordell uh, when reviewing perhaps a settlement spreadsheet that you put together? Sure. So it's really, really good, solid advice to get the advice of someone that has a a high level of tax knowledge behind them to determine whether or not this proposal is indeed fair. So at our firm, we do have LLMs that help us run through the different scenarios of retirement accounts to see what's best for our clients. Um, If you don't have access to to an LLM or you choose not to stay with us, um, you're going to go find a CPA to have somebody else who understands the ins and outs of this to see if this makes the most sense to you. So when you're making big financial decisions about your your sum total of assets on the table, let's make sure you're moving the ball the right way. Right. Because there may be a situation where you would want to trade a taxable asset for a non-taxable asset Correct. and you're, you're ahead at the end of the day. Correct. Because that tax, you know, let's just say it's worth 100000 when you take it out as a 401k or an IRA and you have to pay ordinary income and capital gains, it could be 50000 Right. Who knows? And in exchange for personal property that has no tax and it's worth more at the end of the day. So, I mean, I think that's hard and in, 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 I think when you see other lawyers in practice, they ignore the tax implications, and I think that's just a huge mistake. And especially when you're representing guys who were, you know, faced with alimony and perhaps child support issues, uh, it is important in our our tax and benefits department who have really, you know, attorneys who have a master's in that, and that's what they they really focus on. So I think it's a good thing to do, and that you should insist upon. Is really looking at is what is the tax uh, implications? Even just having that discussion with your mm-hmm. attorney. So real estate. Something that's overlooked is trading real estate for retirement and um, considering commissions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and so what do you do with that? And if you have a person that. Uh, how are you valuing your real estate? Are you considering commission on sale or what are you doing? So it all depends on the states you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some of my partners practice in states where they are allowed to calculate the commissions into the total. Um, if someone is going to keep the home, um, we are not a state that really allows that under our laws. Um, but that is certainly something you need to consider is that if someone's going to keep the home at at some juncture, they're probably going to sell it. So they're going to want a discount on what they have to what they're what they have to buy you out for. Mm-hmm. 
uh, by virtue of them likely having to sell that at some juncture. Um, oftentimes, if it makes the most sense, especially if your real estate market is hot, it is a much easier sell to both clients. Say, hey, let's liquidate this. Let's take our winnings mm-hmm. from the sale here and let's move on our merry way. Yeah. It's also an easier pitch to the kids of we're closing this one chapter mm-hmm. of our life right now and now mom and dad are starting separately. So now we're both going to get two yeah. different homes and it's a very visual representation of the kids that you guys are going through a new step in your life. So one of the things uh, early on in when I began practicing that I think is overlooked and, and we don't have to get into detail mm-hmm. really, it's just a high level. When you're dealing with pension, surviving spouse benefits, mm-hmm. is that something that is a value that is often just ignored in court orders? And do, I mean, does it have value? I mean, I know we're talking about something. Maybe you describe very, sure. very quickly what that is, sure, because it can get very technical. Right, pensions are such a they're such an antiquated thing because nobody has them anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, those they, they seem to have gone by the wayside in most most gigantic corporations. The only thing that really has it left is the federal government. So the feds allow you to um, to ask for what's called a surviving spouse benefit. So if you pass away, that leaves you a little bit of a, a nest egg to be able to hand off to your wife or to any other beneficiary who can receive that. It means you get less over the life of your pension because your annuity is is taken down a notch because they have to amortize that amount over a longer period of time. And so most that's a very valuable thing to a wife who wants to still continue an asset past your death. Most pension rights evaporate if you pass away. And so she would lose her rights to her share of your retirement. But if you do this, it's a very valuable thing to her, but it reduces what you have in your pocket. So so um, it is usually my advice uh, if that is that something that comes through most folks come into my office already having have made that choice as mm-hmm. to whether or not there should be a survivor spouse benefit. Yeah. Um, but if they haven't made the choice, I usually tell them not to because it minimizes mm-hmm. what my client gets. Right. And you can negotiate that away, trade it for something Correct. else because it's more valuable. Correct. I mean, she may be looking to get a couple hundred bucks more. Just depends on the value. But you shouldn't just assume because I think if what I've seen historically is if you don't mention it and she's already – she's just going to get it. And she just basically got an asset for free and you wound up getting less money. So I think it's worth guys out there talking to their attorney and saying, hey, can you talk to me a little bit about the surviving spouse benefit? So um, let's talk as we continue going through uh, settlement considerations, custody. Uh, When you're thinking about custody, let's talk generally first what – maybe high level, what they're thinking about, what are the considerations as it relates to the legal and physical, what should they be thinking about, what should they be asking for, or what should they be looking for if they're going to settle relating to custody only? Sure. So my best advice on on the custody piece of this is if you have an attorney that practices family law primarily, that attorney should be able to tell you where the judge is going to come down custody-wise. By this time in your litigation, you should have had at least one conference with the judge, so you should have some indication as to where the judge is leaning. Your attorney should be practicing enough in the courthouse that you're in to be able to give you a good indication if this is a judge that just gives every other weekend, if this is a judge that does week on, week off, if this is a judge that likes to make parents try to parent jointly before vesting sole custody in somebody else. So that's my first piece of advice when determining whether or not you're going to be able to settle custody is know where your judge is going to come mm-hmm. down first. And if your attorney doesn't know, then tell your attorney to get on the phone and call some other people till they can figure it out. Right. Uh-huh. So when they're going through their custody, um, some of the things that maybe they've never heard of that I like to throw in are rights of first refusal. 
Sure. Talk about that. Sure. So a right of first refusal is a, re- a really peculiar thing. Um, in some states, it's written in the law. In some states, it's not. But a right of first refusal is if, if it's your time and you can't exercise your time with your kiddo because you have to pull a late shift at work or you got called out of town on a work conference. Um, You have to offer that time to the opposing party first before you place the kid with an alternate care provider like your mom or your sister or a babysitter or whomever. Um, So it's a a real prioritization of the parent first in in the eyes of the court. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also requires a lot of contact between mom and dad and a lot of support between mom and dad as a co-parent. So sometimes if it's written into the law that judges can do those things, sometimes they are reluctant to do so if there's not a high level of cooperation Mm -hmm. between mom and dad in litigation. But it could be something of use for guys, let's just say you have mom who is not so apparently into exercising as much time with the kids as they want. You know, she wants to start her new life, right? And right. she has a new boyfriend and she wants to live the scene and she's woke right. now. And so it could be to the advantage of guys to have a right of first refusal because they get more custody. Absolutely. And they serve as a, a maybe a springboard into a future modification on child support. Absolutely. If she's willing to give you more time, you're going to smile and you're going to say, yes, please. Yep. And it is all is always my advice, and I'm sure you've given similar advice mm-hmm. in your legal career, that even post-judgment, after you guys get divorced, keep track of when you have the kids. And if it turns out you've been consistently getting the kids more than as is required under your judgment, that's your, you take that to your attorney on a modification, and that's exhibit A. Yeah. Are overnights important to consider in settlement? Overnights are important if there is a if there is a tie to your um, your child support number. Some some states do tie how much you pay in child support to how often you have the kids within your home. I am in a state that does that. So the more overnights you get with your children, the lower child support you're going mm-hmm. to pay. Um, some states do not tie it to overnight. Some states tie it to um, other different more arcane calculations. But it, the overall bigger picture is what can you do with your job reasonably, right? Mm-hmm. If it's going to be really hard for your kid, if you go to work at six o'clock and your kiddo has to get up at five and you got to bring him to before and after care at six and school doesn't start till eight, yes, I understand you want time with your kid, but you also need to think about it from your kid's perspective because that's where the court's going to come from. Is The, the judge is going to go, is that really fair? Right. I don't really know. Um, labels, physical custody, where they call it physical, primary, residential, is it a label? Does it matter? Uh, what really matters? Sure. Under my laws, the label for physical custody doesn't matter. The label for legal custody, the, which is the decision-making power, mm-hmm. really matters. So if you're going to fight for a label, you're going to fight to make sure that you have equal say in your in your child's life, in your child's decisions, and deciding where they go to high school, and deciding if they get braces, and deciding when they start to date. You want to have an equal say in those things. Um, in terms of the physical custody schedule, labels don't matter a whole lot where I primarily practice. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I routinely negotiate away. I'll be the first to tell you that I've settled a number of cases where my clients walked away with 50-50 custody, but we call it sole mm-hmm. physical custody to mom because she's more concerned about the label. Right. Find what they really want, their weakness, the kind of their linchpin, their kryptonite. Correct. And if she wants the label and it doesn't mean anything to us, then give it to her, right? Correct. Let's back up a little bit to child support and, you know, because we talked about custody. Is there something you would recommend? Obviously, again, child support is, it varies in its calculation in in state to state, but particularly should guys think about, should they ask about adjustments or should they just follow whatever calculation is and is accepted as gospel? 
Well, take a bigger picture view of what your kiddo's expenses are. So if you're paying child, if there's child supports on the table, but you have a kid that goes to private school and private school tuition is a fortune, if you have a kid that has um, a lot of uncovered medical bills that you guys have to pay out of pocket or high therapy costs on a monthly basis, then maybe it makes sense to argue to deviate downward for the purposes of trying to get to a number that actually meets the needs of the child. Most child support calculations, at least in my experience across the country, they're looking to try to fill a hole in what the kiddo needs post-divorce. Mm-hmm. And so what does the what does the child actually need to meet their needs on a daily basis? And um, if, you're, if you haven't had a conversation with your attorney about what child support is supposed to be used for, now's probably the time to do it. Yeah. So when you leave and you get divorced, you know what you're supposed to be paying for and what you're not. Child support in my jurisdiction is meant to cover, you know, what the law calls non-duplicative expenses. What that mm-hmm. practically means is stuff your kid only needs one of. Right. So your kid doesn't need two winter coats. It's one when he's a mom and one when he's a dad. So, you know, if she calls you and says, hey, I need new money for shoes, unfortunately, that's what child support's for. Mm-hmm. I've never met a dad that hasn't <laughs> been willing to write the check. But um, once you open that door, you have to expect they're going to keep kicking it open to yeah. ask for more and more and more. Tax deduction. Um, walk through why it's important to consider the tax deduction for the kids um, and how you can use it to your advantage. You know, let's say we have a high income earner uh, spouse. Our client and the dad. I mean, at some point, there's a, a point of diminishing returns that they should or should they can't even use it. So. Uh, what should they think about and talk about and consider in tax deductions? Have a conversation with your attorney, first of all, as to whether or not this is something the judge has some discretion to order, right? Mm-hmm. There are some states where they have the discretion to, to hand it out to whichever party gets the biggest benefit from it. Mm-hmm. There are some states that say, we're just going to divert to what the feds say, and the feds say whoever has the kiddo more than 51% of the time gets to claim the kiddo on their taxes. But to Scott's point, it's a very valid point. At some juncture, you, your client might, if they're making above a certain level of income, mm-hmm. you don't get a benefit from it. So it's something you can cede to the other party in negotiation and look like you're giving something up when it right. really doesn't matter anything to you. Um, but that's where that tax advice you talked about comes in earlier, mm-hmm. is that if you have the ear of whether it's an LLM in tax, whether it's a CPA that's really good at this stuff, um, to find out exactly whether or not this is a benefit for you at your income. Some people are so tied to it because they've always taken it and they don't mm-hmm. realize that as their income has gone up or they got a last big bonus at work that all of a sudden it's not going to be a benefit anymore. Right. You may get a couple hundred bucks of value out of it. Um, and I think that's important to have a what you know really an income analysis uh, done by someone who has some tax experience, and say, okay, let's look at your income filing separate with the deduction. Here's what your tax mm-hmm. bill would be. Without the deduction, here's what your tax bill. I think some guys would be shocked that right. the, it's a negligible difference. Correct. That they could take a you know a, a twenty five hundred dollar or whatever it is deduction and trade it for some real property. Mm-hmm. That you know walk away time. It's like you just made off better. So you you oftentimes get a better you get a better bang for your buck by arguing about who's getting the real estate deductions than you do about the kid. Yeah. So you know, hand in hand, obviously, um, there are some states that require college tuition and the accompanying perhaps deduction if your income is there. So is that something that they should be considering? Correct. If the judge is going to tag you to help contribute towards your child's college education as a, hey, I'm sorry, your mom and dad got divorced. Let me help you pay for school. Um, then you are absolutely positively need to go to the mat to fight for that. Because if you don't take the, if you don't take the child as a deduction on your taxes, you can't write off the tuition, as mm-hmm. is my understanding. So that's usually where I'll go to the mat to fight about that stuff. Any other situation, it's one of the lesser things that I have to worry about. So we can't get it settled. Uh, we Now we've reached the point where either the client's chosen or opposing party's chosen. Let's talk about trial. Sure. Um, 
general, before we get into the process and the specifics, what is kind of your, I know you, you and I were speaking about that, um, general view and uh, recommendations regarding settling piecemeal, uh, sure. perhaps, and then trying some parts? Is that important or do you just do all or nothing? So at least in my experience, I will tell you about 98% of these cases do settle themselves. 2% is probably what gets to the finish line of having the judge have to make the decision for you. And when you ha- want the judge to make the decision for you, it is best to get them to focus on the things that really are causing you the most consternation with your ex. And so uh, any family law lawyer that does this for a living should be able to pick off the issues that can be settled and then try the issues that cannot. There are some attorneys that prefer to take it all in front of the judge, but I'll tell you what, in my experience, and this is my you know 17th year of being involved in family law, um, it has been my experience that the judges get very, very aggravated if they have to try something that they thought you could easily settle outside of court. Mm-hmm. And so they are more apt to work a little harder and get to more fair of a judgment if they have limited issues that they have to try instead of if they have to do custody, support, alimony, uh, property. If they have to do everything, then all of a sudden you've made more work for them and they're less likely to be a little bit more invested in what you want them to do. Yeah. I mean, really, the hardest part about trial is you you give up the authority over your decisions. You're right. Someone, who someone you don't know. Someone who doesn't know you from Adam is making uh-huh. a decision about something that is really, really important to you. Yeah. And so that that's the hardest part about clients that get to this point. You have to have a meaningful conversation with them to say, look, the judge is going to make a decision and there's a darn good chance you're not going to like it, but it's going to be done and it's going to be over and she's not going to have the final say. So you get there. What's the process? You know, are they more than one day? Is it an hour? I know it varies by what you have. Walk me through that. Sure. It does vary by by exactly what you're fighting about. If your case is really in-depth and there's a gigantic custody issue or a lot of valuation issues, it's possible you might go a couple of days in a row. Um, Mm -hmm. If you have a pretty straightforward issue, I I just went to court this morning and I'm set for six hours of trial. The judge determined six hours would be appropriate to try my prenuptial agreement and the property issues that were behind it. And so the judge will have some indication as to exactly how long they think you need, and they will send you you well before trial home with um, usually a pretrial order that tells you how to organize your exhibits, how to share information, trying to get you to stipulate to as much as possible as you can with the other attorney so you're not wasting a bunch of the court's time fighting about documents and such. Um, the judges really, in, the, in all of their attempts in pretrial orders, they're trying to streamline things to make it easier for them as to what they need to pay attention to. In the trial... Um, who are the players, I always like to ask? Is there a jury? Sure. So uh, it, it does depend on states. Uh-huh. So Georgia Yeah, Georgia. I think Texas is the Texas other. Texas is the other. You can have a jury, but you can in most states, right? Correct. Most is just a boring old bench trial. So the judge is your jury. Yes. Um, are there uh, witnesses? You can have witnesses. You can choose. You should be having a, if you get to this point, you should be having a meaningful conversation with your attorney about any collateral source witnesses you want to bring, whether it's your mom to t- say how great you are with your kids, whether it's your boss to explain your work benefits. If you need people to verify some of your documents, you're going to bring them to court. Um, oftentimes, it's important you know that if you bring witnesses or even if you just bring people for support, mm-hmm. um, nine times out of ten, the judge is not going to let them sit in the courtroom and hear everything. This isn't like a show. Right. And and so it is a move that I use all of the time as a way to, to, to make this case be solely about my client is when the opposing party brings 20 people, right. I will stand up to the judge and say, judge, some of these people very well might be witnesses. Kick them all out of the courtroom yeah. until I make that decision. So it's not like divorce court on TV. It's not, unfortunately. <laughs> 
So, so uh, experts, you can bring experts, witnesses, correct. anything you need, evidence, you're going to present evidence and correct. the client gets to testify if they want, right? Absolutely. So you, this is this is going to be your chance to tell the judge your side of the story. And should you get to the point of trial, you should be having a lot of meaningful discussions with your attorney about how your story is going to be told, how your attorney is going to take the issues of your case and, and elicit them in front of the judge in a way that makes you most sympathetic. That's what you're paying your trial attorney to do. And if your trial attorney doesn't have a, a theory of your case, if they don't have a, a way as to how to organize your case to get you from point A to point B, then maybe it's time you probably seek a new lawyer. So in the last, uh, our third part of the series, we talked a little bit about guardian ad litems and what is the role of the GAL um, in a trial? And if you didn't listen to the third part, really the guardian is a representative to make the best interests, you know, decisions for uh, the children. But what is their role at a trial? Guardian ad litem is just like another lawyer in the trial. Mm -hmm. So your lawyer will be asking you direct questions. The other party will be cross-examining you. Your lawyer will have the chance to redirect you. So anything you happen to not say wonderfully on cross will be cleaned up on redirect. A guardian ad litem will also have a chance to ask you questions that pertain solely to information about the child. So it's another attorney that sort of participates in the case. And then depending on your jurisdiction, at the very end of the case, before it's all submitted to the judge for the judge to make the decision, um, a guardian ad litem very well might be called upon by the court to make a recommendation in court about what they want to do as in for custody. Some will try to weasel out of it and will mm-hmm. try to you know, propose a parenting plan so they don't have to be cross-examined. But if you have a jurisdiction where you're allowed to put them on the stand and if you think that um, the guardian ad litem is not supportive of your case, by all means, tell your attorney you want to call them and make them justify yeah. what they're going to tell to the judge. That's their job. It's right. what you paid them to do. So clients always ask, when am I going to get a decision on the spot once the, the trial's over? Am I going to yeah. hear exactly what's going to happen? Unf- Tell me. Unfortunately, there's a really low likelihood you're going to hear it on the yeah. spot. They usually take everything as heard and submitted, which means they need to go back and they need to think about it. Mm-hmm. Most lawyers end up having they, having to do what's called a request for findings of fact. So the judge makes you try to write up the judgment as you how you want it to read. So you'll write it up how you want it to read. The other side will write it up as to how they want it to read. And the judge takes it both on jump drives and then will edit accordingly and sort of make their decision in their own time. Um, It varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction as to how quick a judge will rule. So again, if your attorney, um, your attorney should know your judge very well. If your attorney can't tell you how long it's going to take for the judge to rule, um, your your attorney needs to get on the phone and start making some phone calls and figure that out for you. So I get the judgment. I don't like it. is that it? I, I can't do anything else, or can I appeal? Sure. So there are most um, in most jurisdictions they allow for post-judgment motions, mm-hmm. where if the judge did something wrong or misstated a fact, or you think came to a wrong legal conclusion, you have the right to file what's called post-judgment relief, asking them to fix it. To say, hey, judge, we, I know you're human. You made a mistake on the law. You made a mistake on the facts. I need you to fix it. So you go and you argue about those things, and either the judge rules in your favor and fixes it, or if something happens in between trial and judgment, where let's say somebody got a new job, mm-hmm. maybe you need additional evidence because the ruling that the judge just made on child support is now wrong because someone else has a higher income. So you give the judge a little bit of additional information that might have happened in the time from the time you guys were in court until the time you ruled. And then after that, if the judge fixes your judgment and you still don't like it, you do have the chance to appeal. This is uh, great information. Thanks, Kristen, for joining and uh, giving guys out there uh, at least some great direction and hopefully some answers to the the questions and the really the concerns they had and the stressors. So uh, that really concludes our four-part series on divorce where we've really covered every aspect about before, during, and now 
after somewhat of the divorce process. If you have more information or more questions and want to get more information, you can go to our websites at mensdivorce.com, dadsdivorce.com, or cordellcordell.com. And as I indicated early on, if you want more information or you just want to talk to one of our lawyers, you can go on our website, uh, check out some of our contact information for your city and your state because we're all around the United States, including the UK. Uh, or you can just dial one eight six six dads law eight six six dads law. So uh, join us uh, next time. Uh, we'll be starting a new two part series on modification of custody, and then the second part on modification of support uh, for those guys who've kind of been through the divorce process. Is it time to file for modification? Uh, we'll give you some information on that as well. So until next time, have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Men's Divorce Podcast presented by Cordell & Cordell. To schedule your appointment with a Cordell & Cordell attorney, please visit CordellCordell.com or call us at 1-866-DADS-LAW. Also make sure to visit our partner websites, mensdivorce.com and dadsdivorce.com and download our free Men's Divorce Source app available on the App Store for the latest divorce news and resources. Cordell & Cordell a partner men can count on.